Thank you, Terry. Thank you. Thank you, Terry. Um, ladies and gentlemen, in this year of 1998, we are celebrating the passing of the man who called himself Lewis Carroll. Indeed, if he had not lived, the gaiety of this world, you must agree, would have been sorely diminished. What's the matter, asks Alice. Have you jabbed your finger? Not yet, exclaims the White Queen, but I soon shall. It's the effect of living life backwards. Even time takes its own mirror image once you pass through the looking glass. There's the White Queen and the looking glass. So we're not surprised to hear that a few years after the Alice books had been completed, as Lewis Carroll tells us, he was out walking on a bright summer's day when, quote, into my head came one solitary line. For the snark was a boojum, you see. As it happens, of course, this turned out to be the last line of his poem, The Hunting of the Snark. I knew not then, he goes on, I knew not then nor now what it meant. Afterwards, the rest of the final stanza occurred to me, and by degrees the poem pieced itself together. Now, this inverse order of writing was certainly not of the White Queen's doing. It was Lewis Carroll himself pushing the limits of plausibility. He was, after all, Charles Lutwidge Dodgson, the mathematician, whose profession it was to push the limits, to challenge, to see just how far logical truths could be bent without breaking. And he loved every minute of it, playing his games as easily among the literate as among the numerate. Even his pen name, he had to have a pen name. In those days, you couldn't be the Church of England deacon and the Oxford Don, which he was, and hold up your head in the high street while acknowledging authorship of Jabberwocky. So you had to have a pen name. And even that was a play upon his own. Lewis for his middle name, Lutwidge, which could as easily have been Ludwig or Louis or indeed Lewis, and Carol for his first name, Charles. In all events, from its inception, with its final line in place, that remarkable poem came into being. Remarkable, I say, because so many have remarked upon it, delighted in it, and memorized it, and encumbered it with outlandish insights and scholarly apparatus. One case in point is this 1981 edition with Martin Gardner's footnotes outweighing the text. <laughs> the book carries claims ranging from Carol's disclaimer of any meaning at all to the assertion that it is an allegory of life's futile search for happiness with debts to Dickens, to Gilbert and Sullivan, and to Kierkegaard. But we are straying. Let us take direction from the text the snark is at hand, let me tell you again, tis your glorious duty to seek it. And what is this great search on which they are embarked, and just who are the hunters? We're introduced to them as they land, the captain or bellman as he is called. All their names and trades begin with the letter B, telegraphing, of course, that fatal climactic encounter with the boojum. We see the bellman here assisting the banker to come ashore, as he did each crew member in a manner for which none of us would care to thank him. Others were a shoemaker called Boots, also a maker of bonnets and hoods, a barrister brought to arrange their disputes, and a broker to value their goods. The motley list goes on to include the ship's baker, who had 42 boxes, all carefully packed, with his name painted clearly on each. But since he omitted to mention the fact 
they were all left behind on the beach. In this 1970 London children's book version, artist Helen Oxenbury draws that scene with the boxes shortly to disappear over the horizon. Though we're told the loss of his clothes didn't matter, he had seven coats on when he came. But though his form was ungainly and intellect small, as the bellman would often remark, the baker's courage was perfect, and that, after all, is the thing that one needs for a snark. There was also a beaver that paced on the deck or sat making lace in the bow. And it often, the bellman said, saved them from wreck, though none of the sailors knew how. But the last of the crew needs a special remark. Though he looked an incredible dunce, he had just one idea, but that one being snark. The good bellman engaged him at once. He came as the ship's butcher, but as fate would have it, he'd been trained to kill only beavers. So the bellman had to explain in a tremulous tone there was only one beaver on board, and that was a tame one he had of his own, whose death would be deeply deplored. Among the remedies offered were to place the beaver aboard a separate ship or to have it procure a second-hand dagger-proof coat. Not one of these remedies, not one of these remedies was adopted. Though ever after that sorrowful day, whenever the butcher was by, the beaver kept looking the opposite way and appeared unaccountably shy. <coughs> the black and white pictures we've been viewing are Henry Holliday's illustrations to the first edition of 1876 and how these illustrations came about merits telling. Once John Tenniel, the formidable punch cartoonist, had completed his illustrations for the two Alice books, he'd had quite enough of working with what today we would brand an impossible client. <coughs> Still, though fussy, arbitrary, and often demanding a complete redrawing, Dodgson seemed to have squeezed out of Tenniel the best work of that artist's lifetime. In all events, Alice's illustrator was not available for the snark. But it happened that in Oxford... Just as the poem was gestating, there appeared Henry Holliday, a liturgical artist down from London to do a chapel frieze. And although his repute was international, Grace Church down near the Strand Bookshop in New York holds five of his stained glass windows, very pre-Raphaelite, very Burne Jones. Despite this success and fame, John Ruskin warned Dodgson that Holliday's work just would not do for the snark. But, but when Dobson and Holliday met, each discovered that the other nurtured a fondness for the company of small girls. Here's a latter-day view of the proclivity they shared. It's drawn by David Levine, that literary cartoonist who rose to notice in the early 1970s with his Victorian-style drawings for the New York Review of Books. Here he records Dodgson at the seaside, increasing his chances of acquiring young friends, with whom, despite protestations from uneasy parents, he managed to practice his obsession with photography. Well, in children, Dodgson and Holliday found a common bond, and just as the bellman had peremptorily hired the butcher, so the author engaged the artist at once. Bringing Holliday aboard propelled Dodgson into overdrive, and he started grinding out the eight segments, or fits, which constitute the long poem. Now, after landing, the bellman delivers a rousing speech to psych them all up for the hunt. 
Friends, Romans, and countrymen, lend me your ears. They were all of them fond of quotations. So they drank to his health, and they gave him three cheers as he served out additional rations. And here they're doing just that in the 1905 rendering by American artist Peter Newell. The bellman concludes his exhortation with, England expects, I forbear to proceed, tis a maxim tremendous but trite, and you'd best be unpacking the things that you need to fit yourself out for the fight. But the baker, on being reminded that the snark could, after all, turn out to be a boojum, passes out cold. As he recalls his uncle's grave warning, this is beginning to sound like opera notes, his uncle had said, if your snark be a snark, that is right. But, oh, beamish nephew, beware of the day if your snark be a boojum for then. You will softly and suddenly vanish away and never be met with again. Revived, the baker goes on to share yet another piece of avuncular wisdom which promptly becomes the poem's chorus. To seek the snark with thimbles, to seek it with care, to pursue it with forks and hope, to threaten its life with a railway chair, to charm it with smiles and soap. Here they are, pursuing it with forks in the company of hope, toting her inseparable anchor, symbol, and a trident fork. Finding all the forks in this picture is like playing Where's Waldo? The baker left rear holds two table forks. Someone's got hold of a haying fork. The banker a tuning fork. Only hope's counterpart, despair, grieves forkless in the background as the others rush headlong in their zeal to discover the snark. Well... Once they had all reached terra firma, episodes began to follow. In his eagerness to ferret out their quarry, the butcher contrived an ingenious plan for making a separate sally and had fixed on a spot unfrequented by man this dismal and desolate valley. But the very same plan to the beaver occurred. It had chosen the very same place, yet neither betrayed nor by a sign nor a word the disgust that appeared in his face. Each thought he was thinking of nothing but snark and the glorious chase of the day, and each tried to pretend that he did not remark that the other was going that way. But the valley grew narrower and narrower still, and the evening got darker and colder, till merely from nervousness, not from goodwill, they marched along shoulder to shoulder. Just what the butcher and beaver experienced in that murky forest will be revealed anon. But for now, take comfort. As Helen Oxenbury showed us, they returned hand in hand, and the bellman, unmanned for a moment with noble emotion, said, this amply repays all the wearisome days we have spent on the billowy ocean. Then there's the barrister's dream, depicted in this nebulous way by Peter Newell, where these bewigged courtroom figures populate the snoring head of the dreamer. Here, the barrister finds himself in a shadowy court where the snark with a glass in its eye, dressed in gown, bands, and wig, was defending a pig on the charge of deserting its sty. Next, we witness a, an attack on the banker by the frumious Bandersnatch in an episode which could have come straight from the student unrest of the 1960s. The banker offered... We're not... What's happening? Oh, I'm pushing the wrong thing. What's happening? Yes. The banker offered large discount. He offered a check drawn to bearer for seven pounds ten. But the bandersnatch merely extended its neck and grabbed at the banker again. And here we see Peter Newell's view of that encounter. The poem ends, as you might have guessed, with the vanishing of the baker. 
just as he's on the point of signaling his colleagues that he's spotted the beast they've traveled so far to find. It's a snark, was the sound that first came to their ears and seemed almost too good to be true. Then followed a torrent of laughter and cheers, then the ominous words, it's a boo, then silence. (laughs) Some fancy they heard in the air a weary and wandering sigh that sounded like jum, but the others declare it was only a breeze that went by. They hunted till darkness came on, but they found not a button or feather or mark by which they could tell that they stood on the ground where the baker had met with a snark. In the midst of the word he was trying to say, in the midst of his laughter and glee, he had softly and suddenly vanished away, for the snark was a boojum, you see. The question remains, was Ruskin right or wrong when he urged that Holiday's drawings never would do for the snark? When we see that bellboy in the back cover of the first edition bobbing in a restless sea with those fatal words welded into the fabric, we're inclined to dismiss Ruskin. The scene is so wonderfully elusive and supportive and in no way collides with any intense, specific, tangible images the reader might have concocted in soaking, soaking up the rhymes. But then we turn back to this scene. Oh, God, Ruskin, if only they'd listened to you. Why Holiday chose to have that butcher resemble Alfred E. Newman from Mad, Ma- <laughs> from Mad Magazine, I will never understand. You see, Ruskin had a point. He realized that Tenniel's images are so sympathetic to not only the storyline, but to the spirit of the Alice books, But they've become in, that they've become inseparable from the events, the anxious white rabbit, the mad tea party, and the greedy walrus and carpenter. And this because Tenniel held back at every turn from vulgarizing the scene through intemperate exaggeration an indulgence which so many of Snark's illustrators could not resist, leaving the pictures to diverge from and conflict with any conception the reader might have developed, yes, even to mock the text. A case in point is Henry Holliday's view of the banker collapsed from shock into his chair after his encounter with the Bandersnatch, while at the left, that apparent cross-dresser comforting the frightened beaver is, believe it or not, the butcher who had turned nervous and dressed himself fine in yellow kid gloves and a ruff, while the captain, ringing his bell, exclaims in a fright, leave him here to his fate, it's getting so late, we shan't catch a snark before night. It's all much too specific much too grotesque. Well, that passage is so inane anyway, they should never have tried to illustrate it. (laughs) But it's a pity, too, because Halliday was a consummate draftsman. Here's his study for hope in that procession of inspirited hunters. But of all Halliday's pictures, none comes closer in support of the poet's wit than the bellman's map. He had bought a large map representing the sea without the least vestige of land. And the crew were quite pleased when they found it to be a map they could all understand. (laughs) What's the good of Mercator's North Poles and Equator's tropics, zones, and meridian lines? So the bellman would cry, and the crew would reply. They are merely conventional signs. Other maps are such shapes with their islands and capes, but we've got our brave captain to thank, so the crew would protest that he's brought us the best 
a perfect and absolute blank. The irony is, of course, that's exactly the sort of map navigators used to plot celestial positions far from land. Such wit more often relies on the logic of dreams in which the peculiar is viewed as commonplace. Here, Dodgson turns it upside down, characterizing the commonplace as exceptional, as, in fact, absurd. The map was so much to the point that it was cribbed by several later artists when they illustrated the snark. For his frontispiece, Barry Moser simply reconstructed the whole thing, here with Bembo types and printer's rules. And Max Ernst gives us this blank page with the scribbled notation, Carte de l'Océan, at the bottom there. A chart of the ocean. Of the artists after Holiday, who undertook to illustrate the snark, will sample only a selection. So many have tried over the years. We've already looked at Peter Newell's Three Cheers for the Captain and the Bandersnatch's Attack on the Banker. Here's his baker taking the uncle's warnings with trepidation. No artist ever drew more than eight or ten for the whole poem. And it's interesting to see how many seem to be thinly disguised reworkings of Holiday's originals. Not just the map, but Newell's uncle warning the baker here comes rather close to Holiday's with the frailed old man, the cramped room, the window beyond. Even Max Ernst, that most independent and original of all who ever tried a hand at the snark, drew heavily upon Holiday's work, as we'll presently see, although the cover abstraction here is difficult to decipher, unless it's the crouching little beaver at the right with the butcher in his yellow kid gloves and his ruff. But we can understand Ernst's landing as an arresting abstraction of Holiday. And his great parade, a pursuit with forks and hope. Although hope is absent, while in the foreground, the diffident beaver, that diffident beaver, as Dodgson tells us, went on making lace and displayed no interest in the concern. Another Ernst abstract shows the bell-ringing captain holding his map, while the beaver, now tiny, sheds tears of terror in contemplation of its fate at the hands of the butcher. Max Ernst's only other illustration for the snark leads us straight into the tale I had earlier promised you. Remember how the butcher and beaver, as chance would have it, had independently fixed on exploring the very same spot in the wilderness and were forced by land contour and nervousness, not from goodwill, to march along shoulder to shoulder? Well, a scream, shrill and high, rent the shuddering sky, and they knew that some danger was near. The beaver turned pale to the tip of his tail, and even the butcher felt queer. He thought of his childhood left far behind, that blissful and innocent state, the sound so exactly recalled to his mind, a pencil that squeaks on a slate. Tis the voice of the jub-jub, and then Dodgson goes into a wonderful mode, mixing mathematical proof with the propagandist's mantra, if you tell a lie often enough, it becomes the truth. The bellman had pulled it off during the landing when he proclaimed, Just the place for a snark, I've said it twice, that alone should encourage the crew. Just the place for a snark, I've said it thrice. What I tell you three times is true. Well, the butcher menaced there in the forest, shown here by Henry Holliday's demons, who owe a debt to Hieronymus Bosch. Well, the butcher menaced there in the forest, turns to the beaver. Tis the voice of the jub-jub, the butcher cried. This man they used to call dunce. As the bellman would tell you, he added with pride, 
I have uttered that sentiment once. Tis the note of the jub-jub. Keep count, I entreat. You will find I have told it you twice. Tis the song of the jub-jub. The proof is complete, if only I've stated it thrice. Ah. The beaver had counted with scrupulous care, attending to every word, but it fairly lost heart and outgrave with despair when the third repetition occurred. In this vignette from a 1970 London edition, the knowing borderline depraved beaver certainly <laughs> belies, belies an innocence of rudimentary arithmetic, but it felt that despite all possible pains, it had somehow contrived to lose count. And the only thing left was to rack its poor brains by reckoning up the amount. Two added to one, if that could be done, it said with one's fingers and thumbs, recollecting with tears how in earlier years it had taken no pains with its sums. The thing can be done, said the butcher. I think the thing must be done, I am sure. The thing shall be done. Bring me paper and ink. The best there is time to procure. The beaver brought paper, portfolio, pens, and ink in unfailing supplies. Here you see him arriving waiter-like with bottles of ink balanced precariously atop an unfailing supply of stacked paper. Uh, and the beaver brought paper, portfolio, pens, and ink in unfailing supplies while strange, creepy creatures crept out of their dens and watched them with wondering eyes. The butcher now proceeds to cut the beaver in on an intricate mathematical calculation. Remember Tom Lehrer, that Harvard math instructor, turned topical folk singer? His view of the new math, with all its double talk, was it's so simple, so simple, only a child can do it. Well, the butcher's calculations smack of the new math. It's clear Dodgson is spoofing the whole field of logic and, no doubt, many of his Oxford faculty colleagues who had taken a dim view of his eccentricities. When he was, has the butcher's numerical conclusions reveal insights into the character of that alarming jub-jubber. Addressing the beaver, he continues, the method employed I would gladly explain while I have it so clear in my head, if I had but the time, and you had but the brain. But yet, much remains to be said. In one moment, I've seen what has hitherto been enveloped in absolute mystery, and without extra charge, I will give you at large a lesson in natural history. In his genial way, he proceeded to say, forgetting all laws of propriety, here they are, alone in the depths of the forest, forgetting all laws of propriety, that giving instruction without introduction would have caused quite a thrill in society. He then goes on to share his revelation. As to temper the jub-jub's a desperate bird since it lives in perpetual passion, its taste in costumes entirely absurd, its age is ahead of the fashion. Which came first, this 1970 version of Helen Ox by Helen Oxenbury or Jim Henson's Big Bird from Sesame Street? Let's call it the spirit of the times. But it knows any friend it has met once before, and it never will look at a bribe. Any of you who have worked out your guilts and economies by volunteering for causes will appreciate these lines. It knows any friend it has met once before, it never will look at a bribe. And at charity meetings, it stands at the door and collects, though it does not subscribe. Its flavor when cooked is more excellent far than mutton or oysters or eggs, something it keeps best in an ivory jar and some in mahogany kegs. You boil it in sawdust, you salt it in glue, you condense it in locusts and tape, still keeping one principal object in view to preserve its symmetrical shape. And there, much like holidays, is Peter Newell's version of the butcher's exposition. 
doesn't it seem quite obvious that the designer of the little boy's extraterrestrial companion in the movie E.T. had virtually copied, copied Newell's strange little creepy creature here in the foreground? Well, the butcher would gladly have talked till next day, but he felt that the lesson must end, and he wept with delight in attempting to say he considered the beaver his friend. Now comes the line to solace those like myself who learn more readily through the ear than through the eye. The beaver, the beaver confessed, with affectionate looks, more eloquent even than tears it had learned in ten minutes, far more than all books could have taught it in seventy years. Such friends as the beaver and butcher became have seldom, if ever, been known. In winter and summer, twas always the same. You would never find either alone. And when quarrels arose, as one frequently finds quarrels will, spite of every endeavor, the song of the jub-jub returned to their minds and cemented their friendship forever. So we've heard about the jub-jub bird. Now what about the snark? What did the snark look like? Huh? Well, at first Henry Holiday assumed he was expected to include a drawing of it. But no way. Dodgson would not hear of it. The snark must remain elusive, mysterious, and above all, unseen. So this holiday's earliest sketch of the snark never made it into the book. But still we get some inkling of what the snark might be like, because unseen or not, the bellman opens his rousing address. We have sailed many months, we have sailed many weeks, four weeks to the month. You may mark, but never as yet. Tis your captain who speaks. Have we caught the least glimpse of a snark? We have sailed many weeks, we have sailed many days. Seven days to the week I allow, but a snark on which we might lovingly gaze we have never beheld until now. Come, listen, my men, while I tell you again of those five unmistakable marks by which you may know wheresoever you go, the warranted genuine snarks. Let us take them in order. The first is the taste, which is meager and hollow, but crisp, like a coat that is rather too tight at the waist with a flavor of will-o'-the-wisp. Now, you who consider yourselves retired would do well to spurn the ways of the snark because we're told that its habit of getting up, la up late, you'll agree, it carries too far when I say that it frequently breakfasts at five o'clock tea and dines on the following day. The third is its slowness for taking a jest. Should you happen to venture on one, it will sigh like a thing that is sorely distressed and will always look grave at a pun. The fourth is its fondness for bathing machines which it constantly carries about and believes that they add to the beauty of scenes as sentiment opened it out. Helen Oxenbury shows us an amorphous green snark struggling to lug about an occupied bathing machine. That popular mobile Victorian beach house brought by horsepower into the shallow water's edge so you could draw on your swimsuit and descend the rear steps into the sea with consummate modesty. <laughs> Clearly, Dodgson had taken strongly against bathing machines for blighting his summer prospects of the shore. And bathing, and bathing machines appear again in the backgrounds of those moody illustrations by Barry Moser, who gives us a sense, gives us the unsettling sense of menacing, unnice things with threatening eyes lying in wait for us beneath roots gnarled among the sand dunes. In Holiday's um, image, in Holiday's image, we're given some hint of what the snark might be like, while the barrister, lower right, lies a-dreaming in his wig, we're treated to a rear view of what has got to be the snark, with its wig and its fin-like paws grasping the scroll. 
And Newell shows us the same sort of thing, even more nebulous at the left, a rear view of the wig that outstretched with outstretched arms beneath the gown. But Dodgson's stricture, no pictures of the snark, like some intimidating curse of the pharaoh, had worn off by the time a century had passed, so Helen Oxenbury felt free to be more specific in this courtroom depiction. This could just as well... Sorry, I'm moving ahead, am I not? Yes. This courtroom depiction could just as well have been an opening scene of the Dickens novel Bleak House, in which the lawyers had been at work on the case of Jarndyce and Jarndyce for years. Clearly, Dickens and Dodgson shared that jaded Victorian view of the law. Well, here is the snark, his back to us on the left foreground, still a rear view, dressed in gown, bands, and wig, defending a pig on the charge of deserting its sty. The indictment had never been clearly expressed, and it seemed that the snark had begun and spoken three hours before anyone guessed what the pig was supposed to have done. The jury had each formed a separate view long before the indictment was read, and they all talked at once so that none of them knew one word that the others had said. In his dream, the snark then proceeds to usurp the principal roles of the court and ends up pronouncing sentence the judge being quite too frightened to utter a word. When it rose to its feet, there was silence like night. The fall of a pin might be heard. Transportation for life was the sentence it gave, and then to be fined 40 pound. The jury all cheered, but the judge said he feared that the phrase was not legally sound. But their wild exultation was suddenly checked when the jailer informed them with tears such a sentence would not have the slightest effect the pig had been dead for some years. <laughs> Publisher Peter, Peter, Peter Bielenson made two runs at issuing an illustrated version of the poem. The first in 1939 with factotum-like figures by Carl Kobeldick, at the time a frequent illustrator of the Peter Porter Press books. Here, the role of the baker with his rolling pin is given to a frog. It was followed a dozen years later by Aldrin Watson's beaver drawing on Art Carney from the old honeymoon Nooner sitcom. With his pal, a fish-headed butcher at the chopping block doubling for Jackie Gleason. It cannot escape the stamp of the mid-1950s children's book. We see now, as we did not quite then, nor would have wished to admit, the debt to Walt Disney. And again, still... Unable to escape contemporary fashion, the London version a quarter century later. Remember, one way to catch the snark is to charm it with smiles and soap. Well, here the beaver perched atop that snark's bathing machine is dangling a bar of soap trying to entice the snark from its lair. The book has the usual trappings of the non-book book. Excessive fold-outs, lift-up flaps, gimmicks, pinch-hitting, for graphic grace and genius. But with, <laughs> but with few exceptions, the map of the sea boy and the metal letters in pursuit of the forks and hope, it can be argued that the hunting of the snark were better left unillustrated. But that's out of the question. So many artists 
and publishers have drawn moth, been drawn moth-like into the tempting flame, leaving only the problem of how this poem ought to be illustrated. It's so wit-laden, so replete with those bon mots mocking the subtle ironies of everyday life, which really cannot be properly conveyed by pictures. They're literary, not graphic situations. For example, when the baker confesses, if ever I meet with a boojum that day, in a moment of this I am sure I shall softly and suddenly vanish away, a notion I cannot endure, to which the bellman looked uffish. A typical Lewis Carroll elision, offish and huffy, become uffish. It's fun to try to decipher these words and get at their roots. The bellman looked uffish and wrinkled his brow. If only you'd spoken before, it's excessively awkward to mention it now with the snark, so to speak, at the door. We should all of us grieve, as you well may believe, if you were never were ne- met with again. But surely, my man, when the voyage began, you might have mentioned it then. Well, the baker mumbles, I informed you the day we embarked. You may charge me with murder or want of good sense. We are all of us weak at times. But the slightest approach to a false pretense was never among my crimes. I said it in Hebrew. I said it in Dutch. I said it in German and Greek. But I've wholly forgotten, it vexes me much, that English is what you speak. Where but from a university community could such a line emanate? Or hear the bellman's advice, which can double as the motto for any trapped, beleaguered bureaucrat. It solaced me many a time in my day. The bellman warned, the snark's a peculiar creature that won't be caught in a commonplace way. Do all that you know and try all that you don't. Not a chance must be wasted today. These are situations which don't lend themselves readily to illustration. I should imagine rather that Dodgson's legerdemain with logic as in the butcher's numerical calculations, which revealed so much about the jub-jub bird, I would think his legerdemain with logic had most fittingly been illustrated by an intricate but comprehensible and acceptable maybe a strip, seducing the reader into accepting Escher fantasies like these, which would, in fact, be totally impossible to construct. Don't get me wrong, we've seen some eminently suitable illustrations for the poem, particularly, of course, the map and the sea buoy. Um, But... They are generalized. That's the key, generalized. And it's why, in conclusion, I'm going to show you a suite of illustrations by a Dutch artist, Peter Foss, which appeared in an English-language snark published in the Netherlands in 1966. No, John John Tenniel, he. The pictures are hardly the epitome of what snark illustrations could be, but they begin to point the way for that prototypical artist, that genius for whom we are all still waiting. Here's the crew. Most are there in the top row, the butcher, the maker of bonnets and hoods, the banker, the baker, and below the beaver, the barrister, the billiard marker, whose skill was immense, might at times have won more than his share. If you look closely, each proves faithful to the poem's description, yet vague enough in its watercolor wash to allow each reader to flesh out a particular image formed from a personal reaction to the text. Remember, they had suffered a perilous sea voyage of many months, many weeks of those wearisome days spent on the billowy ocean. But in due course, the danger was past. They landed at last with their boxes, portmanteaus, and bags. Yet at first sight, the crew were not pleased with the view, which consisted of chasms and crags. The bellman perceived that their spirits were low and repeated in musical tone. Some jokes he had kept for a season of woe. 
but the crew would do nothing but groan. Then he served out some grog with a liberal hand and bade them sit down on the beach, and they could not but own that their captain looked grand as he stood and delivered his speech. There he is on a promontory in the foreground getting ready to exhort his colleagues. And here, true to what we're told, is a rather hearty version of the Jub-Jub, hailing any friend it has met once before. Then we go on to the terrible finale. There's Thingamabob shouting, the bellman said. You must be told that the poor baker had forgotten not only his 42 boxes that he carefully that he left behind on the beach, but his own name as well. He would answer to high or to any large loud cry, such as fry me or fritter my wig, or to what you may call him or what was his name, and especially thingamajig. Well, there's thingamabob shouting, the bellman said. He's shouting like mad, only hark. He's waving his hands. He's wagging his head. He has certainly found a snark. They gazed with delight while the butcher exclaimed, he was always a desperate wag. They beheld him, their baker, their hero unnamed, on the top of a neighboring crag, erect and sublime for one moment of time. In the next, that wild figure they saw, as if stung by a spasm, plunge into a chasm while they waited and listened in awe. It's a snark, was the sound that first came to their ears. Well, you know the rest. The snark was a boojum. Now, a lovely touch, particularly for a bookish audience like this one, is the illustrated colophon. Who are these figures? Is that the snark itself declaiming to the publishers? It seems that's for you to decide. And now, in order that I myself might softly and suddenly vanish away, I'll return you into the hands of that greatest boojum of them all, Terry Bellinger. <laughs> we'll get the lights out. <laughs> 